if you want to build a pathway or a system or develop a job or develop a post or an area that you're interested in, be a little bit proactive. If you want to see some change, you know, you need to kind of make that change happen. Welcome to the Dietetics Digest podcast, a podcast that helps you understand more about the different areas of dietetics and nutrition and what others are doing within them. We do this by talking to inspiring and influential individuals that are advancing practice in some way, shape and form. Our mission is to create a resource that helps dietitians to build, grow and share ideas with each other to help advance their practice and the practice of others. I am your host, Aaron Boyson. Welcome to the Dietetics Digest podcast. I'm pleased to welcome my guest, Graham Syme, who actually contacted me back, I think last year was it? And wanted to share with everybody, the audience of the podcast, about his journey and experience in becoming an endoscopy-trained dietitian. So could you introduce yourself? So what, what is your job role? How did it, how did it start? What, what led up to this point? Yeah, hi, Aaron. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me on your show. Yeah, so, 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 so my job is I'm a, I'm a GI dietitian, so I work in gastroenterology, and I've been doing that for approximately six years now. Um, and my current job is, uh, is a luminal post, so I, so I work with inflammatory bowel disease predominantly. Uh, I also cover celiac disease, and IBS, or, or, or it's kind of a functional GI clinic with a lot, a lot of IBS uh, involved. Yeah, so I've been doing that for, for approximately six years. My current job is, um, my current post is based at the Royal London Hospital, which is part of BARTS, um, the oldest hospital in the world on its current site. Well, at least Bar- BARTS Hospital would be. Yeah, so, so I've been here for four years now. Um, the, job, the job's predominantly inflammatory bowel disease. So, so we run, um, we've got a huge IBD service down here. Um, so we've got a, an inflammatory bowel disease dietetic-led clinic. We've got a young adult um, transition clinic. So we've got patients between 16 to 24 that we would see as part of an MDT clinic, uh, which runs every other week. Uh, we've got a celiac, uh, so a dietetic-led celiac clinic, where we would have patients um, referred to the dietetic uh, clinic from the point of diagnosis, and they would be followed up and reviewed. Uh, and then we've also got a functional GI clinic. Uh, as well as that, we've got a lot of um, dietetic uh, inpatients that we'd see on the wards. So the, I, the IBD caseload would also be mine. I know, so you've got quite a quite a large caseload. And how long have you been doing that role for? Uh, so I, I started off, um, I, I, my, my first band five post was out in, um, in Essex. I uh, loved it out there. Um, and then I got, a, I think, 18 months afterwards, I got a band six uh, gastro role, which is a brand new role. And it gave me the, the chance to kind of develop. And then I think I've been here... For for four years now, so so yes, I think I've done my um, band six job for, for about two years. Um, so about four years is a band five, band six, and then band seven IBD, luminal disease. What made you want to get into that area? What what was that sort of? Obviously, there's multiple different paths you can paths you can go in in within gastroenterology. Why did you pick IBD and those sort of that that patient? Why did you choose to um, care for those patients? Yeah, I, I think it was heavily influenced by by my peers. Uh, and, and my patients. So that the really nice thing about um, gastroenterology is, is, is diet's so important. You know, it's the GI tract, it's, it's food goes in, it's digested, you metabolize it, you absorb, uh, and then you've got whatever waste products that you, that you produce. With, with the gastroinflammatory bowel disease and IBS, the cohort, the patient cohort, they're young, you know, uh, and they're young and you, you get to work with them uh, and build a relationship with these patients over a period of time, which, which is great. And during one of my, my rotational posts, as a band five, uh, I was covering hepatology, uh, and one of the gastroenterologists, uh, it, was, it was a fairly new consultant, and as, as a registrar, he was heavily influenced by the dietetic department. 
So he had, he had good experiences from, from dietitians, which then reflected, reflected on his practice. You know, and, and I'd see him on the ward. He'd pull me in MDTs. He'd ask my opinion. Um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a highly influential chap uh, with regards to my career and development. Really, the people you work with, both the patients and, and the clinicians, um, really that kind of led me down this path. And I think that's quite um, quite an important thing to remember. I think when my experience with other members of the MDT, it's been highly influenced, not with their experiences necessarily with myself, but their experience with previous dietitians or the expectation they have from me and my my knowledge set helps them to establish the need for a dietitian and helps you to ask where appropriate for your guidance and support. And I think that's really important to understand that when we're representing dietitians, we're not just representing ourselves, we're also representing the whole profession and the future development of the profession and the improvement in um, patient care that dietitians can deliver. So obviously you're on this podcast because of your recent upskilling into becoming an endoscopy trained dietitian. How did that, how did that initially start? What, what triggered that thought process in your mind? How did that sort of, what piqued your interest? I guess I'm really fortunate in the, in the sense that, um, you know, my post is funded by the gastroenterology service. So I, I predominantly work with that team. I cover all the, all, all the outpatient clinics um, from that service. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most academic. So things, uh, you know, research, development, um, management, it's, it's not for me. So, so when you think of career progression, I like the clinical side. I like speaking to patients. I like uh, working with the MDT. Uh, I come from a, a background in construction, so it's you know so so to to incorporate my hands into my clinical practice would, would be great. So Health Education England actually uh, released some funds, so they're they're actually funding clinical endoscopists or, or the training of clinical endoscopists. There's a there's a huge demand for um you know uptake of diagnostic uh, procedures. So if we think of upper GI cancer, such as stomach and esophageal cancer, it makes up a small proportion uh, overall cancers. It's, it's less than two percent. But the the outcomes are are, are quite poor. So the prognosis uh, of, of esophageal or stomach cancers, you know, it's, it's not it's not it's not great. It's, it's about forty four percent, um, you know, one year's time. So the idea is, if we diagnose these cancers earlier, uh, the, the outcomes are better. Um, so that, so currently, there's about twenty percent of clinical endoscopists are performing these these diagnostic procedures. So that's non medical clinical endoscopists. So that would be nurses or, or allied healthcare professionals who've trained in endoscopy. And the idea for NHS, uh, the NHS and Health Education England is to, is to make that, that number about 40, 40%. Um, so Health Education England released some funds um, and I was sort of nudged um, by, by management. You know, this is, this is perhaps an opportunity uh, for you to, to develop your career. Uh, you know, I, I kind of done a little bit of research. Um, I spoke to the, the, the lead of gastroenterology the endoscopy matron, my, my clinical lead, the dietetics head of department, um, and, and the moons, the moons aligned, uh, which allowed me to, to go on. Uh, well, I had to apply actually, and then uh, you know, I was successful in the application process, uh, and then yeah, the training started, which is a forty-week um, training program. And I can imagine, obviously, I remember when you messaged me. It was I can't, I can't remember the exact date, but it was it was during the pandemic or at the at the at we what we now realize was the start of the pandemic. How has that affected the training process through through the journey? Because obviously I remember you saying you had to take certain breaks to support your team at the hospital to provide care to maybe critically ill patients and things like that. How did, how did, 
how did that interrupt your training and things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think initially seen um, on on LinkedIn, uh, you, you were. I think it was a uh, Christian Christian Costas. You had a, and I thought, oh, you know, that's great. You know, and, and during, during the lockdown, it was pretty much work, 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 wasn't it? It was. I, well, I mean, you, you've you've got a family, but um, now I was just working and coming home and sitting around, sitting around the house, uh, and I thought this is great, you know, for for juniors, dietetic students, uh, or anyone really, you know, to have an insight of what's going on uh, other parts of the country. Yeah, so we had uh, I applied for the clinical endoscopy course. I think the interview was February. How long was it? Planned? February two thousand nineteen. When did COVID hit? So COVID was first. Uh... I think discovered on New Year's Eve of 2019, so it would have been 2020 if it's like right at the start of it. The course was due to start. There was a cohort that that began in April, April last year, um, and following following the interview process, I wasn't, I wasn't. Um, my, my background in endoscopy wasn't great. You know, I had I had shadowed a few um, procedures. Um, most, I'd say, I'd say 99.9 percent of the people on this course are nurses that work in um, endoscopy. So their background is pretty pretty extensive. I think part of the conditional of me getting on the course was I had to spend some time in clinic in endoscopy uh, and then keep a journal and then and then look at cases and familiarize myself with the with the pathways within endoscopy. I didn't get to do a lot of that because of the, the lockdown. Uh, not the lockdown because of COVID. So COVID hit, which meant a lot of these procedures were cancelled. They're aerosol generating procedures. Um, and so, so as well as that, they're trying to minimise the number of people in the room. The other thing is, is the Royal London. We were one of the busiest COVID hit hospitals in the country, so I think we had something, something like five hundred plus patients in our hospital. And, and if you know the Royal London, it's it's just a, it's just a big, great big blue tower block. Uh, and then what we've got is, I think we've got 14, 14 floors, and on top of that, there's another two floors. And these floors are in, it was almost like a multi-story car park. It was, it was like, uh, you know, if you went out there, it would be just concrete, concrete pillars, like something you would drive your car around when you go to the shopping center. Um, so we had the Nightingale Center, um, which is out in, um, in East London at the, the Excel Center. And then, so what we, what we done, there was a short period of time where they were closing the Nightingale Center and they were building this purpose built um, ICU unit. So it's about 150 beds, purpose-built ICU unit, which used to be a multi, multi-story car park. Um, and all, obviously you've got all these patients that you need staff. So a lot of the nursing staff from endoscopy, a lot of the doctors, the dietitians, um, we had to, we had to um, you know, call in some, some colleagues from the community. We had to get pediatric dietitians, community dietitians. We had um, dietitians from neuro, from uh, care of the elderly, from respiratory, all kind of upskilling and working uh, within the ICU unit. Um, so, so that meant a lot of my my uh, clinics were cancelled. Um, some of them were pushed over to telephone clinics. You know, I was I was helping out, um, not so much in ICU, but more kind of I was helping out in, in neuro and care of the elderly and respiratory and general medicine, um, which, which meant there was a 10-week period where, where our endoscopy service was, was pretty much closed. It was closed for training anyway. So you know, you can imagine you're closing a closing a service for ten weeks. There's going to be a backlog of patients, uh, and you've got you've got a lot of uh, trainees as well. So that's that's one of the one of the things. You know, if you're considering the clinical endoscopy program, you need to make sure that your your endoscopy team are happy to support you. So that's one of the big challenges. Um, you've got a lot of registrars. You've got um, surgical trainees, gastro trainees, 
the, the, the need to train an endoscopy. It's part of their, their school and it's part of their um, training objectives. Um, so they're a priority. You know, those individuals, they have to train an endoscopy. Now, if you're getting someone like me, who's not a gastroenterologist or a surgeon that wants to train in endoscopy, you need to try and fit your training in and with their training. So, you know, a lot of the time you, you, you'll be, uh, you'll message a clinician, can I join your endoscopy list? Uh, I'll clear my diary on, on Tuesday afternoon. And you go to that list and there's, there's two registrars hanging around. So you, you might have to split the list and share the list, uh, which is fair. But um, yeah, it's def- definitely challenging, um, Arne, particularly during the COVID time. You know, there's ten, that, during that 10-week period, there was no training. Uh, you're still attending the online classes. You're doing your, you're doing your, um, your work in the evenings. So how did you overcome that challenge? Obviously, you had the 10, 10-week period where you were unable to shadow any endoscopy procedures or, or clinics. Obviously, you still had the online training, but what, what, how did you overcome that 10-week period? Did you catch up with 10 weeks' work over the next uh, certain amount of time, or how did, you, how did you tackle that challenge? Yeah, I, I, I guess, you know, again, I've been very fortunate. Um, the dietetics department, uh, you know, although we're really busy, we're, we're kind of short-staffed, you've also got staff that are um, isolating themselves. Um, so you've got staff that are isolating uh, as well as having, having very few feet on the ground. Um, but, you know, we, we, we agreed to protect my, um, my training days. So there was uh, the virtual, virtual uh, training, um, which would be your um, uh, theory work. Um, and, and that consisted of um, online teaching from John Moore's uh, University in Liverpool. So we would have um, online um, seminars, which would be every other week. As well as that, there's, um, there's e-learning. So there's various modules that you have to complete online. And that, that um, slate, which don't ask me what it stands for, is, is the online uh, module for, for clinical endoscopy. Um, so you work, you're, you're working your way through this, even, evenings and weekends, uh, as well as my protected one-day um, study time. With regards to the 10 weeks that was closed for endoscopy, it was, it was closed to the, the practical stuff. So following, following um, I think, I think from, from February this year, you know, I was just joining ev- everyone's list. You know, so I'd be, I'd come in at, you know, I'd done a couple of weekend shifts where I would join um, a gastroenterologist uh, on a Saturday and, and, and would, would do 20 OGDs in a day. I would, I would get on everyone's list and, and the, you know, the, the endoscopy and the gastroenterology department were great. So they prioritized my training. I had a, I had a window. So I think the 200 procedures had to be done by, I think, May, May this year. So between February and May, it was a case of, you know, let, let's, let's, if, you know, let's get creaming. So the, the clinical endoscopists, the consultants they would be texting me, you know, I've got, I've got a list this afternoon. Do you want it before I offer it to someone else? Um, so you know, again, again, I've been very fortunate to have a great, a great team, both the Dactrix team, as well as uh, endoscopy. I'm very fortunate. Arm. Brilliant. That sounds that sounds fantastic. Forgive my ignorance in this regard. Do you intubate the patients if you perform the endoscopy? You said they need help with intubation. You said um, you said if you might need help with various different things. If you need help with intubation, I thought. Do you intubate the patients, or is that done by? No, no, no. So, so the, the, the part part of the training, and this is for all trainees, uh, whether you're a gastroenterologist or a surgeon, I, I think. So, you the training is is provided. Um, it's called the, the JAG, which is the Joint Advisory Group for for endoscopy, and that's a governing body of endoscopy. 
Um, and, and as part of your training is you, you create a, por- a portfolio and you log all your procedures on that. So that 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 tracking tracking system, you know, even if once you're qualified, you're still logging all your procedures on JAG because you have to get your KPIs up, um, and you have to you have to do so many a year once you're qualified. I think it's a hundred a year to be um, competent in, in endoscopy. So for, for your training uh, purposes, you've got two hundred procedures that you have to do. Out of that two hundred procedures, ninety five percent of those procedures have to be done completely by the trainee. Uh, and that, that includes intubation. So you put the camera over the back of the tongue, down under the epiglottis, and then you'd be down into the esophagus. Um, you have to get down into the into the stomach, through in, through the pylorus, into the small intestine, uh, into T2, so the second part of the small intestine, and then you've got a retroflexion. So there's, there's uh, some uh, anatomical markers that you have to identify, uh, and you have to tick all those boxes for 95% of your procedures. You mentioned previously that you're on a little bit of um, a back foot compared to some of the other people. So you said that a lot of the people on the training courses were previous endoscopy nurses. They'd obviously been there for t- probably hundreds, if not thousands, of procedures prior to that. So they had a, a various, they had a decent knowledge of pathways, endoscopy pathways, those sorts of things. And obviously, you had to obviously learn those and develop a further understanding of those because those aren't really things that are that most dietitians would know off the top of their head say as well as a endoscopy nurse would but is there any benefits of that you've noticed from actually having the dietetic knowledge informed practice yeah i mean i think a dietitian's got you know got, got a lot of positive traits when it comes to um working in endoscopy i think the main one for me was uh, form- formulating plans and and you know already kind of thinking about the the diagnosis beforehand. So just to kind of give you a bit of, bit of kind of insight or background, these patients, you, your your list is already triaged. So you've you've perhaps got ten patients in a morning list. Um, from those ten patients, you would prepare. So you would look at, you know, why are these patients referred. Where did they come from? Was it from the GP? Was it from a, a consultant? Are they on a, a, a two week wait? Are they? Is it a straight to test? What kind of symptoms have they been having? Are there, is there any red flags? What's their age? What medications are they on? And as a dietitian, you're already doing that. You know, if you're in clinic or you're going to see a patient on the ward, the information gathering, that's that's pretty much our bread and butter. You know, we don't do much of the hands-on stuff, but we're really good at, um, you know, drawing all this information uh, and thinking about a plan, thinking about an assessment um, and putting all that that detail together. Um, so, yeah, you know, you look. It's very, very similar. So you're looking at you're looking at this information. You meet and greet the patient, and then you do the procedure. And a- afterwards, you know, you, there's some questions that you can ask and you can home in on. A lot of these patients are referred for weight loss. You know, and weight loss is 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 thrown around quite 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 flippantly. Um, so you you actually sit and speak to a patient uh, and say, "How much weight have you lost? Have you lost weight?" Well, actually, that was intentional. That weight loss. Or, or there's some bereavement, or you know, um, I've had some some family problems, uh, and I've lost a little bit of weight. Can can you quantify that weight loss? You know, Aaron, you, you you know, ask me how many patients are screened in the endoscopy department for nutrition. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Um, so, yeah. So the patients. I mean, well, that's something that we're implementing right now. So so patients come in. We don't we don't do a must uh, on patients that come in through endoscopy. Why don't we weigh and take a hike? These patients It's simple. It takes two minutes, uh, and for a lot of patients, that could be the that could be the beginning of a journey. 
you know. They see a clinician six months down the line, six weeks down the line. Oh, you were referred for a gastroscopy for weight loss. How much weight have you lost? Well, the GP didn't tell us that information. Um, but, you know, luckily, uh, when you went to the diagnostic uh, procedure for your gastroscopy, we weighed you uh, and we've got a must. So you've actually, well, you've, you've only lost half a kilogram. It's insignificant. Nothing to worry about. Or, well, you've actually lost six kilograms. It's a bit worrying. So, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of benefits. Um, I think, I think everybody brings their own qualities, don't they? You know, have you got, have you got a nurse? The nurse has got a lot of qualities that perhaps the, the dietitian would overlook, uh, and the dietitian has got a lot of kind of qualities that they would perhaps home in on. Um, so, so there's there's definitely some um, pros and cons of having a dietitian on board. Definitely, and the fact that you've brought the the malnutrition screening to the endoscopy procedure is something quite. As you said, it's the start of a journey, and obviously having those those points sort of laid out beforehand, and from that you could probably almost formulate a plan, start initiate referrals to services that are available, and just start it start their journey off a little bit faster and more, having the patient being seen a lot faster. And we know that with malnutrition and with nutrition in general, the faster we do an intervention, the more the easier it is on the patient. And also the the better the outcome. So I think that is a massive benefit to patients just by just, it seems quite small to us, but I think overall it can have a really significant impact. And as you said about sort of monitoring weight and stuff, I can imagine that dietetic knowledge, whether, whether the patient can remember their exact weight previously, obviously most dietitians have the ability to ask questions around sort of other elements of weight loss and various clothes thing looser and we're quite familiar with asking those sorts of questions around sort of trying to quantify weight loss maybe not in in pounds and ounces or kilograms but actually in how much weight have they lost what whether it's significant or not significant and we're able to do that assessment and I think that's we're really quite good at it because it's a bit it's our bread and butter should we say it's often what our training consists of quite heavily and also a lot of graduate roles around the world even consist of those sorts of things. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, yeah. And I think having a dietitian, you know, there's a lot of these um, traits that rub off. You know, so if you're working in an endoscopy department, um, you know, I, I'm I, now, now what I'm doing is I, I'm asking the nurses, you know, can, can we get this patient to jump on the scale um, before they leave, you know? Um, and, and, and hopefully these little, these little traits will rub off um, and then we'll have, you know, more people jumping on the scale before they leave. Um, and, and, and it's like you say, you know, a lot of this weight loss is subjective and unless you kind of dig a little bit deeper, it's difficult to quantify whether it's significant or not. And, and there's simple questions that, that a dietitian can ask and they can save a lot of time. They can save a lot of kind of anxiety for the patient. They can save a lot of money. It's little simple touches. Definitely. And I think it just improves care overall, especially for these conditions like upper GI cancer, where weight losses and maintaining weight and malnutrition are extremely high risk of that. Maybe not at that point, but starting off early and making sure they're well nourished going into the various different treatments that they'll have is a massive advantage. And uh, it probably, as they say, a stitch in time saves nine. And I think that's a that's a phrase that can be used universally. And I think this theme with extended roles, so I've interviewed Sam Francis from uh, Bradford Teaching Hospitals. I've, inter- I've interviewed Laura Clark from Rotherham Community. And this, this initial thing of not all the time, but almost starting 
their extended scope or their advanced training on a back pedal compared to some of the other people because they they don't come from that background and the course is particularly designed for people who have that background so they 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 struggle maybe not struggle a little bit more but they have a few more barriers to overcome but then as you said they bring something to that area of work from their dietetic knowledge that they that wasn't there before and i think that's such a it's such a useful um such a useful perspective to have and i think as we as we follow plans like the ahp into action about thinking about extending roles and how also other people can provide sort of nutrition support and aid to patients yeah absolutely i mean it's all about diversifying isn't it that that's why we attend mdts you know that's why you know dietitians are on the payroll you know we're experts in nutrition uh we don't know much about about feet and eyes and and things like that but you know you you know, you can you can throw your hat in the ring and you can contribute and, and people learn from you. You know, you're on an MDT talking about a complex discharge, a chap who's going home with a peg feed. The the, the clinicians, the OTs, the physios, the, the doctors, you know, the, the home health team, they, they want to know what, what your input is. You know, we've definitely got, got some skills and, you know, everybody's got some skills. I always say this to... Um... Often there's a there's a current where we have new dietitians coming into the office and they they often say similar things like I don't know as much as other people on the ward I don't know as much as this doctor or surgeon I feel quite nervous in sort of expressing my opinion or various different things and obviously it's always couched in a, in a respectful way understanding the roles of different team members but I always remind them that obviously you've done so much training on nutrition and dietetics that they've not been able to do. So you can provide that assessment for the patient, that an outline of probably talking to them about the plan, the clinical risk of, say, malnutrition and what your thoughts are on it, that they, they, they've they not experienced, had that training. Because obviously they are, everyone's trained in their own area and speciality. So I think understanding that is really, really helpful in sort of, I mean, collaborating with other people. So that where wherever their experience lies, they have something to give. And I think that's so important. I think even within dietetics, the different backgrounds we come in come into dietetics with, that can inf- that should inform dietetic practice and move the profession forward. And again, it all comes back to that diversifying of the profession and helping to improve patient care overall. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, di- dietetics is a it's a fairly young profession. I mean, what is it, maybe eighty years old or something? Uh, you know, and, and we're still finding our feet. Um, you know, what dietitians are doing now to what we're doing, you know, thirty years ago. You know, creating cheese and and making up supplement drinks with adding eggs and all sorts in the kitchen to what we're doing now. It's you know, it's it's come on quite a bit, and it, it's only going to grow. And I think we are part of that shaping, and I think we should be part of that shaping because if we don't do it, nobody else will. Or um, probably, I can imagine somebody who's not a trained dietitian would tell dietitians what to do and we we don't want that we want to we want to lead our own change and push our profession forward um so what does the future look like for yourself like where where do you think the role extension would work well or how how is your how is your job going to change or how is your working week going to look yeah so that i mean the idea is uh, i'll currently i'm back doing the the role that uh, I used to do before was doing the, the endoscopy training program. So Health Education England released some funds, which um, allowed some some locum cover. So really grateful to, to the local team. Really grateful to my two colleagues that, that backfilled the clinic. And the, the idea now is um, that we're going to expand the, the upper GI 
service. So, you know, the, the kind of first thought would be we've got, we've got a dietetic led celiac service. Um, so those patients who are referred for, you know, uh, biopsies would be put on, on, on the dietitian list and then they would follow them up in clinic. Uh, the other, the other thought is, um, having the EOE service. Um, so the dietetic providing, providing, you know, um, ex- ex- exclusion diets as well as, um, some clinics and, and having a, having a, a kind of helpline. EOE is quite, um, quite specific. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of things like balloon dilatations, which have got, you know, high risk of perforation. Um, so perhaps you're not doing the therapeutic stuff, but, um, you could be doing some, some diagnostics or some tissue biopsies for patients who've got EOE, uh, as well as following them up in clinic, giving them some dietary advice. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, this is, this has opened a lot of doors. Um, there's no kind of clear pathway in, where this is going to go um you know give it give it one or two years time and, and, and see where we're at definitely i think it'd be it'd be interesting to see what what comes out of it and i think even if obviously health education funded the role because we need endoscopists i think it's a common thing around the the country that um the endoscopy waiting lists are massive and even if we can help support in that role initially before we're able to really um, a pioneer, an extended role, or thinking about how that would work, how that mix would be marry up quite wonderfully. But I think even if you think about roles such as a dietitian placing an NG tube, they're two separate activities. The dietitian places the NG tube and then does the dietary assessment. It's not a, it's not the same activity. So I don't see any difference between a dietitian performing a endoscopy on a patient and making a, a diagnosis of a patient and then following up and treating that patient. I mean, there's lots of benefits to that. Um, I think the first benefit that you've mentioned is just the speed of care, the speed of um, input from a dietitian, And that's always something we're trying to get better because we don't want someone to be identified of malnutrition and then be put on a waiting list or be um, identified or not identified of malnutrition because it's not part of the screening procedure until later on. And then it's almost like an uphill battle for both the dietitian, but especially the patient. And obviously we know when nutrition that's an uphill battle is often more of a burden on the patient, especially things like upper GI and things like that. And if we can prevent that burden on patients, then I think that's really, really beneficial for them over, over, obviously we want to ensure that they have correct nutrition and things, but I think there's so many things you could, you could look at and the world is, you're, you're a pioneer, so think it'll be interesting to see your journey and see where it goes. You know, I've got a lot of people to thank for, for, for this course. You know, it's, it wouldn't be possible hadn't, hadn't it been for Health Education England, you know, um, the, the university, the dietetics department, the endoscopy team. The, 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 the team have been absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So, I mean, let's see where it goes. Um, but, but there's definitely, I mean, there's definitely scope for, for dietitians to, to, to start doing more diagnostic as well as um, you know, treatment and therapeutic parts of the, the pathway. There's a lot of dietitians out there that want to get more hands-on, and it's always, um, as again, a lot of things like management structures and how, what a dietitian does, and how do we actually ring fence that time that actually prevents us prevents them from doing that. And it might be a an interesting diversification of a dietitian's role to have clinics, but also have say endoscopy procedures that they conduct as well. What has been the most challenging thing about this whole process of actually becoming a endoscopy trained dietitian? The most challenging part is, is time management and prioritisation. I'm very grateful that the, you know the dietetics department we've got here. The, my colleagues are absolutely fantastic. 
the, the gastro team, the endoscopy team. You know, I, I wouldn't change them for the world. But at the same time, you know, there's there's been a 10-week a period where you, you couldn't train and then we're, we're kind of playing catch-up. Um, you've got the academic coursework that you're doing kind of evenings and weekends. Then you've got friends and relationships and, and things like that. We've got some local locum staff to, to help cover clinics. But at the same time, these little clinics are, are my clinics. You know, I've I built those clinics over four years. You know, I've, I've kind of, I want to know what's going on in these clinics. It's, you know, and that's one of the things I would, I would say to, you know, newly qualified dietitians is um, don't don't jump into things. You know, take, take your time. Um, assess the ground. I think you need to, you know, be be, be patient. Don't don't volunteer. It's easy, you know, you, when you start a new job or you get quite enthusiastic about something and you jump in and you think, oh yeah, I can do this. You know, my caseload's not busy right now. I can do this. I can do that. The next thing you've got journal groups and service developments and you're doing diet sheets and you, you've got you're launching little um, all sorts of kind of clubs and projects. Uh, and the next the next minute you're swamped. And you're not having you're not having much fun. Um, yeah, so so I guess prioritization uh, and time management has been the most most challenging part. But I'm very grateful that you know colleagues have, have helped me with that. And I think with those with those things, it can be quite attractive as a as a newly qualified dietitian to jump in in these projects. But I would also reaffirm that these projects can be great learning opportunities. But again, as you said, you can do too many and you can be spread too thin. So I think definitely using your one-to-ones to discuss those opportunities with your supervisor is always really, really helpful. So often sometimes with these extended roles, people report or people anecdotally, the fear is that people will think you're taking their job. Um, you're encroaching on their space. Have has It doesn't sound like that's ever been any sort of discussion that you've experienced? Has any any been any push pushback from anyone else? Any other healthcare professionals? No, not at all. I mean, I mean, there's a there's a big drive. You know, the the, the government are paying for people to train and and, and uh, would I say upskill um, or side skill? Would you say side? Yeah, side skill. I mean, I, I wouldn't say endoscopists are any any more skilled than a dietitian. It's a, it's a different skill. Yeah, so so you're 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 training in, in another another area that you're bringing some 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 assets towards. Um, I think I've been I've been welcomed by you know with open arms by by the team. Um, so we've got I think we've got five clinic endoscopists. So that's non medical endoscopists at our site. You know, it's like a little family. They're they're absolutely wonderful. Uh, the consultants, brilliant bunch. Uh, and a lot of these consultants are referring to your clinic. You know, they they know you. They're referring to your clinic. And you can you can have a chat with them. You're becoming a little bit. Um, the length in communications is shortened, um, you know, considerably. So you you'll be up in endoscopy, joining their list, or you'll be in the room next to them. You can have a little chat. I think it's it's definitely helping um, to network um, between dietetics and, and uh, gas, gastroenterology. There's there's definitely no hostility about pinching jobs. No, no, no. I can imagine um, with this one, they're 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 happy for the help. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of jobs to go around. It sounds like, but yeah, there's a lot of work to go around for people. So I guess they're they're just happy for the help and support and the enthusiasm of other healthcare professionals to take part in something that they um, they can help support them with and include other people. But I think it's been a really interesting discussion, and I think hopefully it's sort of triggered these thoughts processes in people's mind around the the role of a dietitian and how their career can change in advance and move in directions that 
they want it to and that there are so many opportunities out there. Um, but then also reaffirming there are so many opportunities out there. Don't rush into them. Take your time and ensure that it's right for you and thinking about how, whether you would enjoy to do that role and think about where, whether it matches your personality. As you said, you're quite hands-on to endoscopy was something that um, really you were really intrigued by. Um, but again, thank you so much for your time to, this evening. And I hope everyone has enjoyed the podcast. Can I just say, Aaron, um, although you know I'm at work and I'm wearing my work attire, it is almost half past eight in the evening. Um, so just just for the listeners, we're not we're not. Um, if anyone's watching this on on Aaron's channel, we're not um, skiving. We're not skiving at work. It's eight thirty in the evening. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for your time. I think it's going to help um, help new dietitians, but also experienced dietitians just expand their horizons and also look out for new opportunities that really um, pique their fancy, I think. Thanks for joining me this week on Dietetics Digest. Make sure to visit my website at dietheticsdigest.com where you can listen to the podcast. Or why not consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Smart Radio, Spotify, or basically just ask Alexa and you'll never miss a show. And while you're at it, if you found this show valuable, you could do one of two things. Firstly, if you could leave a review on the podcast app you're listening to, maybe it be Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Smart Radio. And if you could tell a friend about the podcast, that'll be really helpful to help grow the podcast more. Thank you so much for your support and have a lovely week, day, wherever you are.